The Book Club is brought to you in association with Charles Stanley Community, providing our clients, colleagues and friends with practical support and conversation. Find out more at Charles Stanley Community. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're going to be talking about alien life. I'm joined by Kevin Peter Hand, who is an astrobiologist at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California, and whose new book is called Alien Oceans, The Search for Life in the Depths of Space. Kevin, welcome. Thank you, Sam. Pleasure to be here. The first and easiest to dispatch question which I imagine everybody asks you is, is there life on Mars? <laughs> uh, yes, that is, uh, that is sort of the, the standard place uh, that we think of when we think of the search for life beyond Earth. For decades, Mars has been the centerpiece of the search for life beyond Earth within our solar system, and, and rightfully so. Mars is a wonderful place to search for signs of, of past life. We think that Mars had oceans billions of years ago, lakes, streams, rivers. Uh, you can see the geologic evidence for that in the rock record. And the Curiosity rover that's on Mars right now could tomorrow turn a corner and find some rocks with ancient microbial life preserved in them. But that life, the, the life in the rocks, would not reveal to us it's biochemistry, it's DNA or RNA or, or all of that molecular workings. To really find life that works on some other biochemistry, we need to find living life, extant life. And that's what brings us to the outer solar system, to these alien oceans. Now, what's, what's kind of fascinated me in, in this book, which, as you describe it, for a very long time, the search for alien life was based around the idea we'd need to find a Goldilocks planet, a planet which mm -hmm. was neither, you know, just the right temperature, the right distance from its star so that it would have liquid water. And mm -hmm. something happened in the 1970s that upended that assumption. And that's sort of where your book begins. Can you explain what that is? Sure. Yeah. The, um, boy, the 1970s, there was a lot going on scientifically. And, uh, and in 1977, explorers uh, discovered hydrothermal vents in the depths of our ocean. These are essentially hot springs on the seafloor. And out of these hot springs are emanating compounds that microbes love to eat for lunch, dinner, breakfast, you name it. It's a, it's a great meal for microbes. And these microbes are doing what's called chemosynthesis, utilizing the chemistry of those hydrothermal vents instead of utilizing the energy from our, our sun. Uh, they're, they're not doing photosynthesis. And so these chemosynthetic microbes in, our, in the deep, dark depths of our ocean give us some indication that some far and distant environments beneath icy shells could be habitable. And so Simultaneous to the discovery of the hydrothermal vents, or, or nearly simultaneous, uh, in the late 70s, uh, the Voyager spacecraft flew by Jupiter and Saturn and, and uh, the other large planets and captured images of worlds like Europa and Enceladus. And then with the subsequent robotic missions of Galileo and Cassini, we got a lot of evidence that liquid water oceans, alien oceans, 
exist beneath the icy shells of moons of the outer solar system. So these, these discoveries in the late 1970s about the prospect for oceans beyond Earth and life in our own ocean existing off of chemosynthesis and thriving in those depths, uh, those were transformative discoveries in the context of searching for life beyond Earth. Now, one of the questions that would occur to you know, the scientifically illiterate like me would be, look, these planets you're talking about, these, the, or these moons you're talking about, sort of Jupiter, uh, Saturn's moons, they're a hell of a long way away. They're very, very, very cold. How could there possibly be water on them or under them, rather? Right, and this comes to this, uh, this new Goldilocks for habitability. And like you're saying, our, our, the, the traditional conception, if you will, of what it takes for a world to be habitable used to center around this idea that a habitable world was a world that had an ocean on its surface in contact with a nice thick atmosphere. And in order for that to be possible, that world needed to be at just the right distance from its parent star, in our case, the sun, such that it had the right amount of energy. And if a world was too close, like Venus, then it was too hot. If it was too far away, like Mars, then it, then it was too cold. But if you're at the Earth-Sun distance, you were in the habitable zone. You were in that kind of Goldilocks sweet spot. And for decades, that was the conception of habitability or the habitable zone. But these moons of the outer solar system, like Europa, Enceladus, and, and Titan, they are teaching us that there's, there's a new Goldilocks in town. A Goldilocks where the energy for maintaining and, and sustaining liquid water oceans comes not from your parent star, but rather from the tidal energy dissipation that occurs as these moons orbit their giant planets. So Europa one of the large moons of Jupiter that uh, we predict has a global subsurface liquid water ocean. Europa orbits Jupiter, and Jupiter is 318 times as massive as the Earth. And as Europa orbits Jupiter, it is tugged and pulled like a ball of taffy, and all of that mechanical stretching creates internal heat that then maintains a liquid water ocean beneath the, uh, the ice shell of Europa. It's a remarkable new framework for habitable worlds. Now, how, given how far away these astral bodies are, are you able to deduce the existence, or have, have we been able to deduce the existence of these oceans? Because uh, that's another extraordinary part of the story in the early part of the book, is what you call three easy pieces, but they don't sound all that easy to me. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, the uh, uh, so in the book, as you mentioned, I I go through the the physics in great detail, uh, and it it is beautiful physics. It's um, it, it can get a little bit complicated, but it I try and convey some of the the science and the math and the and the history of the of the discovery in a way that's uh, readily accessible to the reader and. In those three easy pieces, I like to break it down into um, uh, when it comes to Europa and the discovery of Europa's ocean. The first piece of the puzzle is finding a rainbow connection. And what I mean by that is uh, using spectroscopy to figure out that Europa has an icy surface. And that happened back in the 1950s and 60s, some 350 years 
after Galileo discovered Europa and the other moons of Jupiter. The second piece of the puzzle, I like to make the analogy to babysitting a spacecraft. And by that, I simply mean that when engineers and scientists communicate with a spacecraft that's out there in the solar system, we can track the slightest deviations of the signal that are, that are coming back from the spacecraft. And from the slight red and blue shift of that signal, we can then tease out the, the pull of a moon or a planet, the gravitational tug of a, of a moon or a planet. And from that, we can get at the interior structure. And so at Europa, when the Galileo spacecraft flew by many times, the inversion of that gravity signature revealed that not only does Europa have an icy surface, but water in some form extends downward for the upper roughly 100 to 200 kilometers beneath the surface. So the surface is about how thick? This is not your average crust on a puddle, is it? <laughs> that's right. So, so roughly speaking, that second piece of the puzzle, the babysitting the spacecraft, yielded a picture of Europa where it has a dense core, an iron core, somewhat similar to the Earth's, except in the case of Europa, there's no molten region. And then above Europa's iron core is a rocky silicate mantle, similar to the kind of mantle that we have, the sort of interior rocky part of the Earth is similar to, uh, to Europa's. And then the outermost region is this region of roughly 100 to 200 kilometers in thickness. That is water in some phase, ice or liquid. And that leads us to the third piece of the puzzle, which is, I like to make the analogy to adhering to airport security. And again, it's beautiful physics. I'll just give you the brief highlight here. But um, when you walk through a doorway in an airport, you're walking through a time-varying magnetic field. And if you've got a conductor in your pocket, that time-varying magnetic field gives rise to electric currents, which give rise to what we call induced magnetic fields. And the alarm goes off and you get pulled aside and given the pat down and maybe you miss your flight. Well, when the Galileo spacecraft flew by Europa, it had on board a, uh, a magnetometer, a fancy compass. And the magnetic field of Jupiter sweeps past Europa and is time varying. And so it's kind of analogous to that doorway that you walk through at the airport. And Europa is kind of like you and uh, the Galileo spacecraft is kind of like the, the sensors in the doorway. And when the spacecraft flew by Europa, the alarm went off. And so scientists gave Europa the pat down and discovered that there's a conducting layer within Europa. And the best explanation for that conducting layer is a salty liquid water ocean of about 100 kilometers in depth or 60 miles in depth. And that ocean is overlain by an ice shell that's maybe a few to 10 or so kilometers in thickness. So that's the story for Europa and that kind of framework, those three easy pieces have been applied in, in various permutations to many of the other ice covered moons of the outer solar system where we have also discovered uh, alien oceans. You've kind of got three favorite candidates, I think I'm right in saying, for, for that, you know, that's correct. How yeah. Earth, which are Europa, which is the moon of Jupiter, Enceladus and Titan, which are two of Saturn's moons. What makes them the best candidates? Yeah, so it's a good question, Sam, and one that um, 
is a topic of some debate within the scientific community, but for the most part, I think my colleagues agree with me that those those three worlds rise to the top. And for Europa and Enceladus in particular, those are amazing worlds to search for life as we know it. What do I mean by that? Well, any good science needs to be founded on a tenable hypothesis. And with Europa and Enceladus, we can look at the conditions that allow life to, to exist here on Earth. We can look at the liquid water environments. We can look at the deep ocean. We can look at the various chemistries and energetics of, of life on Earth. And then we can compare that to the liquid water oceans of Europa and Enceladus and, and say with relatively good confidence that those oceans are potentially habitable. So Europa and Enceladus, these are liquid water oceans with rocky seafloors, and the chemistry of both of those oceans seems to be somewhat similar to our, to our own ocean. And so we can say if the origin of life is easy, if life can operate in conditions comparable to those found within Europa's ocean and Enceladus's ocean, then life could be there. Now, Titan is a curious world. Titan does have a liquid water ocean beneath its icy shell, but that ocean is trapped beneath a very thick ice shell. And even though there could be life within that ocean, there is something else that makes Titan particularly compelling. And that is that Titan has seas and lakes of liquid methane and ethane all over its surface. And for that reason, Titan is my favorite place to search for weird life. Life unlike any life that we know here on Earth. Life that might be based on a completely different biochemistry. Life that might use liquid methane as the solvent instead of liquid water as the solvent, which is what life here on Earth uses. It's clear from the writing. So I love those. Sorry, go What's it? I was going to say, it's clear yeah, yeah, from the so, writing of it how much you love Titan, because you sort of imagine yourself on the surface of Titan. You know? <laughs> it's, a, it's a beautiful world, that's right. It's uh, many aspects of Titan. It's, it's got this thick atmosphere. My uh, brilliant colleague, Ralph Lorenz, has actually done this calculation where you know, if you could survive uh, in the harsh environment of Titan, the gravity is such, it's uh, roughly a sit and one-seventh of the Earth's, uh, the gravity is such and the atmosphere is thick enough that you could have wings like Icarus and uh, do human-powered flight uh, on Titan. And so, um, yeah, it is, it is kind of a magical world, and it could host weird life, life unlike anything that we can uh, hypothesize. If you talk about weird life as a sort of, you know, separate line of hypothesis, I mean, for, for if you like, non-weird life, for life that's recognisably along the model that we have here... Can you say sort of relatively simply why water and carbon are sort of absolutely vital to it? I mean, they seem to be the two things that underpin it, if I'm getting that right. That's right. And, and so all life on Earth, uh, along with being based on DNA, RNA, proteins, ATP, uh, all life on Earth is water-based and carbon-based life. Uh, water is the solvent and carbon is the major building block. And carbon as the major building block, carbon is just, it, it, when you look at the periodic table, 
carbon is sort of the social butterfly of the elements. It, uh, it loves to bond with itself and bond with other elements. And it does so in a way that can make very large, complex compounds, but not overly complex and, and rigid. In other words, these, these compounds uh, can contain a lot of information, they can contain a lot of structure, but they can also be broken apart in liquid water uh, to be replicated and reformed. And that's an important contrast. I, I often get asked, well, what about silicon-based life? Couldn't life be uh, based on silicon? And the answer could be yes. I, of course, have no idea what the universe has in store for us, but at least when I look at the periodic table and when I look at uh, the world around us, there is one thing that is exceedingly clear, and that is that silicon can form beautiful chains and beautiful compounds, but the problem with silicon is that it forms very solid and rigid compounds. And we know that because those compounds are called minerals. They are the rocks that are on, underneath our feet. And so um, uh, you can get the kind of crystallography of information storage and, and some, some great structure. But when it comes to metabolism and replication, uh, the, the silicon tetrahedrons that form in rocks it's not good for uh, for forming life. And then water, uh, water plays well with the polar compounds of, of, of carbon and the um, and some of the nonpolar compounds. In other words, the, the charged compounds and, and how to dissolve them and allow them to, to be put back together. So water and carbon have some very nice attributes. And it could be that that chemistry is commonplace for life in the universe. And here again, one of the things that's beautiful about these alien oceans in the outer solar system is that we can test this hypothesis. We can just go out there and explore these worlds and see whether or not these liquid water oceans beyond Earth have given rise to a second independent origin of life. And we can see whether or not that is carbon-based life, water-based life, or for that matter, DNA, RNA, ATP-based life. How much is contingent? How much is convergent? You know, you leave slightly open the question of whether there are separate origins of life on Earth. I mean, is it considered likely by people in your field or in the, you know, other other sort of biological sciences that the sort of chemosynthetic life that you we find around the carbon vents that you know the sort of recent player on the scene is a sort of separate you know, line of descent from the photosynthetic, you know, light-based source we've got, you know, which until recently we thought was the only type. Right. So, so um, there's a lot to sort of unpack in there. And the, uh, so, so first and foremost, all of life that we see on Earth today, from the photosynthetic, photosynthetic on the surface of the Earth to the chemosynthetic in the depths of of our ocean or in the depths of, uh, of rocks, all of that life is connected by the same tree of life. And all of it roots back to a singular origin of life on Earth. Now that said, it could well be that billions of years ago, and, and that tree of life that, uh, that we're all connected by, that, that DNA uh, tree of life for all life on Earth, 
that we think originated in the range of three and a half to four billion years ago. And it could be that back then in the early days of our planet settling down and, and giving rise to life, it could be that life arose in many different places at many different times. But over time, the tree of life that now embodies us outcompeted any other tree of life that, that may have started as a little sprout uh, billions of years ago. And so, you know, if I, if I had a time machine, I would go back to that kind of primordial era of our planet to see whether or not there were, in fact, uh, different starts of life. And, uh, and to be clear, to see that, I would need a microscope because we're talking about <laughs> single-celled microscopic life. I'm not talking about you know, weird uh, large organisms. Large organisms don't appear on the scene on Earth until about 500 to 600 million years ago. So here on Earth, there could have been many different origins of life, but at some point in our planet's history, the tree of life that is us outcompeted everything else. And there might still be a shadow biosphere somewhere on Earth but that's kind of a, a pretty extraordinary claim and that's hard to, uh, to verify. But, but I will say this, uh, when it comes to the search for life elsewhere and the search for life within these alien oceans, it's not only about the prospect of finding alien life, it's also an exploration and a potential discovery that could help inform our understanding of where life arose on our home planet. The hypotheses for where life arose on Earth range from tide pools on ancient seashores to deep-sea hydrothermal vents. And on Europa, there are no seashores, and so that modality for the origin of life does not work on Europa. So if we go to Europa, we find hydrothermal vents, but we don't find any life, then that might tell us that the origin of life around hydrothermal vents on Europa or even on an ancient Earth is not that viable. And maybe the, the tide pool, the ancient seas tide pool uh, idea for the origin of life is more viable. So there's a lot that we can learn about our own origins by exploring these alien oceans. Yeah. Now, one of the things you are quite bold in doing is to sort of speculate that, you know, there might be more than microbes under that ice and the way you know you're, you're obviously thinking quite hard about what form life might you know complex large life might take you know that there might be whatever squid or something that looks a bit like it swimming around under the under the ice how do you make those deductions I mean you mentioned earlier that that phrase the difference between contingent and convergent and that seems to be a scaffolding on which you build some of this speculation. Can you explain a bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, and uh, for listeners out there, part of the way I wrote the book is, is to get into a lot of the detailed science. But I also really wanted it to engage the imagination. And so the chapter that I titled The, the Octopus and the Hammer is one of my favorites because that's where I kind of get a little bit far out in thinking about these contingencies versus convergencies uh, in, in evolution and what complex life could look like within an ice-covered alien ocean. And so 
Contingency is, when we think about evolution, um, what adaptations, what mutations are contingent on the environmental parameters. And there's debate about exactly what qualifies, but as one possible example, think about the rise of mammals on planet Earth. That, you could argue, was contingent on this asteroid coming in and wiping out the dinosaurs to then clear the planet for tiny little uh, uh, mammals that could then evolve into us. Now, one could argue that eventually uh, there was going to be a, a big impact that would wipe out the dinosaurs. But, um, but in any case, that's, that's perhaps one example. Meanwhile, when it comes to convergence, the, the classic example is uh, vision and sight and eyes. On Earth, eyes have evolved some 50 different times uh, in our own tree of life. It is clearly advantageous for an organism to develop a mechanism by which you can use photons to look around and sense the world around you. And so I wonder what might these aspects of contingency and convergence, how might they apply to the evolution of complex life within an ice-covered ocean like Europa? Could alien octopi arise and, and how might they then develop sensory systems such as uh, uh, electroreception or taste and smell or, or, or even hearing? And then I kind of extend that into what would be the the contingencies on their development of, of technologies and, and could they ever have any concept of living in a universe with stars above? I mean, think about it. If, if you're an intelligent alien octopus uh, out there in an ice-covered ocean, you have no idea that above that ice shell is a universe of stars. All you sense is the creaking and cracking of your ice shell. And that's what would give rise to your mythology, your philosophy, your religion, your art. And so in that chapter, I kind of explore how the night sky has inspired our sense of wonder and what it might mean for an alien creature uh, in, a, in a deep, dark ocean to, uh, to evolve intelligence and technology and yet not have access to the stars sort of above. Stuck in Plato's cave, aren't they? Um, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> do, do, that, that sense of wonder, I mean, is that what, what got you started? You have, a, you have a sort of lovely little passage where you mentioned that, you know, there was this point at which they announced, I think it was, I mean, 20 years ago or so, that they were going to go to Europa and get a probe down and, you know, the far future date of 2009 and they're going to start digging below the ice. And you say, you know, I was this alien obsessed kid. Or is that, that what got you going? Because Europa is your specialism, isn't it? Uh, that, that's correct. And, uh, oh, goodness, Sam, it's, this business is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> those, those timelines can get depressing pretty fast. Um, yeah, I, I, for me, I, I grew up in the, the small mountainous state of, of Vermont, and the, the night sky above inspired me, as did a number of amazing teachers and, and uh, the writings of Carl Sagan and, and the Cosmos television series. I was obsessed with E.T. and all that fun stuff. And then in college, the Galileo spacecraft, when I was in college, that's about the time when the Galileo spacecraft 
started returning very compelling evidence of an ocean beneath Europa's icy shell. And JPL, the place where I now work, had a press release showing a, a melt probe getting through the ice and into the ocean of Europa. And the date on that press release was 2009 for that mission to occur. Well, 2009 has come and gone, and uh, we don't have a melt probe. We do have a mission called the Europa Clipper that will hopefully get to the launch pad in the not too distant future, and that will orbit Jupiter and fly by Europa some 45 plus times, and that's a spectacular mission. And the European Space Agency also has a, a wonderful spacecraft called the Juice, the, called Juice, uh, the, the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. And that's going to be an amazing mission. It will launch around the same time as the Clipper mission. And it will orbit Jupiter, make a few flybys of the moons, and then it will go into orbit around Ganymede, another incredibly compelling ocean world of, of Jupiter. So those two missions will occur within the next decade. And then much of what I spend my time on is trying to get a lander to the surface of Europa. That lander would hopefully happen in the next decades. And that lander would pave the way for then a follow-on mission that would finally have that melt probe that gets directly into the ocean below. So again, this business is not for the faint of heart. I just hope that we can uh, commit ourselves to a, a robust and, and daring uh, stage of exploration to, to get out and into these, these alien oceans. Does the, does the SpaceX launch have any bearing on your feelings? About, I mean, does that, does that open anything up or change anything? Or is that a kind of Tesla publicity stunt? <laughs> Oh, no, SpaceX is, is wonderful, as are many of the, uh, the other companies out there. And, uh, you know, I, I actually knew Elon a little bit uh, from grad school and, and years ago, uh, asked him if, if he could uh, spend some time getting a, a lander to Europa. He's, he's a little focused on Mars and, and, uh, and the rockets at hand right now. But hopefully someday we can, we can engage SpaceX uh, in this endeavor. And frankly, you know, the biggest limitation we have right now is the the ups and downs, the fickleness of these federally funded space agencies where the the political winds blow in different ways and it's hard to stay on, on course for exploration. You know, th there's nothing magical, there, there's no magical technologies needed to do this exploration. A dedicated rich billionaire or a set of billionaires out there could fund and build a lander to go uh, to the surface of Europa or deep into Europa. Uh, there are plenty of engineers and scientists who would jump at that opportunity because it would be a dedicated, uh, it would be a commitment to getting that done. And, uh, and there are a number of advantages to that uh, when compared to the, the political ups and downs, the, that kind of cycle that we have to be subject to. I have to hope some billionaires listen to the Spectator podcast. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> now, Kevin, how optimistic are you that in your lifetime we'll find, you know, some definitive signs of life on one of these distant worlds? <laughs> well, Sam, so keeping the, that previous question in mind and the, and the fickleness of, uh, of our exploration, with that as, a, as an important caveat, here's what I'll say. Uh, 
if we did have a committed and robust plan of exploration uh, to Mars, to Europa, to Enceladus, to Titan, and to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence for, for signals coming from, from distant exoplanets, if we had a robust program in place that could be sustained for uh, the next decade and, and the decade after that, so let's say 20 years, that I think would give us enough time to get missions out to these worlds and we would have gotten enough exploration done on Europa and Enceladus and these other worlds to know whether or not they are full of life. Uh, you know, if, if Europa has a lot of life and the biosignatures are relatively easy to find, then a lander to the surface of Europa will find those biosignatures. And we can get that exploration done within the next 15 or so years. Who knows? You're, the origin of life may be exceedingly hard. And as I mentioned before, you know, maybe the origin of life has or has not occurred on these worlds, and both outcomes are equally uh, intriguing uh, from a science standpoint. But I'm optimistic that within the next 20 years, if we have a committed program of exploration, we could find signs of life on Europa, on Enceladus, on Titan, on Mars, and possibly even signals coming from some civilization that's standing on some exoplanet far out there in the galaxy, looking up and uh, potentially seeing our pale blue dot. Well, they wouldn't be able to see us, but they might have, uh, have our sun as a point of light in their night sky. In your heart of hearts, do you think it's there? I do. So uh, to be clear, I, I, I don't think with my heart. So uh, <laughs> you're a scientist. Uh, <laughs> but um, based on my study of life on Earth, and, and I've had the, the wonderful chance to explore all sorts of crazy environments on planet Earth. And everywhere I go, I just see this, this robustness of, of life on Earth. And with that, I feel comfortable making the prediction that the origin of life is relatively easy and that life arises wherever you bring together the conditions of liquid water, some catalytic rocky surface, uh, and some energetics to, to, to initiate life. There's a bunch more to that, but I do fall on the side of the origin of life being relatively easy. And so I do think that we live in a biological universe, not one in which life on Earth is some sort of uh, biological singularity. So, uh, yes, I'm, I'm optimistic that we do, in fact, have alien oceans out there in our own solar system's backyard. And those alien oceans are, I think, I predict, perhaps teeming with microbial life and possibly even more complex life. Well, that's very exciting to hear. Kevin Hand, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you so much, Sam. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode. Thank you.
The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Try a month in print and online for free. And, for a limited time only, get a free wireless phone charger. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash charger to start today.